Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. I'm Orly Perrier. The subject of our podcast today is the politics of Turkish language reform. Uh, often on the podcast, we deal with very esoteric and sort of new subjects of study, but I think everyone who knows something about the history of the late Ottoman Empire and the early Turkish Republic will be familiar with the uh, radical transformation of the Turkish language, um, which, as we'll be discussing today in this podcast, is relatively unique in the, in the history of, of human language in you know, the 20th century. Our guest is Dr. Emanuel Shurek. He's associate professor uh, at EHESS uh, in France. He's based at the at Setobak, the Center for Ottoman, Turkish, Central Asian, and Balkan Studies. That's the translation of its title. Uh, and he's a historian who has worked on the subject of uh, Turkish language reform from various angles, as well as, as the history of French Turkology. So, Emmanuel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today here in Paris. And in, uh, in addition to Aurélie and Emmanuel, in the studio, we have two other regular Ottoman history podcast communi- um, contributors in the studio who will be helping us with today's interview, Sechel Yilmaz. Ha- hello, Sechel. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. And Nir Shafir is here, as always. He's in your left channel on his uh, signature pile microphone, Nir. Welcome. Always a pleasure. I always bring the pile. It's great to have a, a big group uh, and a diverse group here to talk about the subject uh, of Turkish language reform because it's it's really one that, you know, I'm not a historian of, of language per se, but it's one that I think for a lot of people, including myself, uh, is one of innate interest and curiosity. So, Emmanuel, before we get into the depth of some of um, your new research, let, let's sketch the general, um, you know, skeleton of the subject of language reform. Uh, Jeffrey Lewis, in his book, uh, calls it a catastrophic success, right? This kind of paradoxical phrasing. So maybe you can open up the, that subject of language reform and explain. Certainly. Yeah. Um, so uh, Jeffrey Lewis is, is certainly... Um, extremely important in the historiography of the Turkish language reform mm-hmm. for various reasons. One reason is that he considered indeed that it was a success. And then second, because he considered that it was a catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Both can be debatable, <laughs> can be right. debated. In fact, if you r- read the quotation of the introduction, he says basically that uh, he thinks that old Ottoman is dead and that what died with the Turkish language reform is the language of Yakub Kadri Karaus Manolu, uh, Halid Edip, and other uh, you know, great writers of the interwar years. Mm-hmm. The second thing, he thinks that the great catastrophe is that the Turkish speakers themselves cannot find their words anymore. Right. And that the language itself has been wicked by the very revolution. So in this respect, he you know, uses the same argument as those irtijai, uh, to speak in terms of a Kemalist mm-hmm. perspective, uh, that uh, would condemn the Turkish language reform already in the 40s, in the late 40s, right. when the freedom of speech was uh, present again in Turkey. Right. So he takes again this argument of Yozlashma. The logic here is, of course, that be- by changing the alphabet of the Turkish language and a lot of the words that people would not be able to read the as you say, these novels that are maybe only a few decades old uh, and are very fundamental works of Turkish literature. Exactly. So there is true to that, truth to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, this was, you know, a cultural purge, uh, a rupture that was extremely violent. Mm-hmm. And the dominant narrative today, I'm speaking mm-hmm. of a historiographical narrative, is to go against the 
the the the, the discourse of a, a Turkish revolution successful. So to insist on how deeply you know every reform of the Turkish uh, interwar right. years was enrooted in the Ottoman background. But the uh, alphabet reform might be the one case where the rupture was effective. And this mm -hmm. was the case because you, the, the reform was implemented through a, a whole lot, a whole set of coercitive uh, aspects yeah. that made it possible in a very short time. Right. So the changing of the alphabet is, is this dramatic change that appears as success. But in terms of changing other aspects of the language, as we're going to be talking about, maybe uh, the reform, while it did have an impact, didn't turn out necessarily the way was originally envisioned by the people who were uh, devising these policies. Yes, um, this is this is interesting. You know, usually when you open up a, a handbook of Turkish history, be it a Turkish handbook or a Western Turkish uh, Turkish history handbook, mm -hmm. you will read that in 1928 the script was changed, and then in 1932 the Turk Dil the Institute of the Turkish Language, was created. Back mm -hmm. at the time, Turk Dil Kik Institute for the Study of the Turkish Language, the name of which was purified in 1935. Yeah. So you will read all these, you know, dates coming up in a chronological order, and this is very akin to the. Kemalist narrative of a revolution that goes forward and forward and forward, mm -hmm. and that is, you know, self-fulfilling all the time. So, uh, against this pers perspective, we have to insist on, first, the fact that from the very beginning, which is from 1928 and even earlier, the project of transforming the language in terms of script, grammar, and lexicon was a whole, you know, uh, one, but, was, but one endeavor. The project was to construct a new language, and by changing the script, the, the reformers were very well aware that they would facilitate the purification, so-called purification, of the lexicon and of the grammar. Mm -hmm. So, and actually, when you look at what happened, you know, already in the autumn, in the fall of 1928, they started the very purification of the language, mm -hmm. or at least of the names of institutions in Turkey. Yeah. So changing the script and changing the words and changing the grammar is very much intertwined. Right. And, th and there's a lot of different um, aspects of this process that we can look at. As you say, um, you have the alphabet, you have the lexicon, you have the grammar, and you also have things like changing the names of places, changing even the names of people and instituting uh, the uh, surname, the, the last name reform that we'll be talking about in just a bit. Sort of to delve into some of um, your area of expertise on this subject, uh, one of the things I that you mentioned in one of your articles um, is that... Uh, Turkey is rather unique in that its language is, to a very great extent, what you what you say is a political artifact. Essentially, that the language is the product of a very specific uh, political program. And I mean, we've had many episodes actually on language change and reform in other regions. I think uh, near our episode with Leora Halperin mm -hmm. on. Um, uh, the use of Hebrew in the, the British Mandate of Palestine is a good example. Um, we've also featured uh, the work of Hoda Youssef in your series on the history of science uh, about the transformation of Arabic language uh, during the 19th and 20th century. And so the Turkish case isn't 100% uh, exceptional. Yet there is this sort of valid sense that it's uniquely this political artifact. Why don't you explain what you mean by that? I would argue that, uh, in fact, the comparison between, you know, Turkey and other cases has been led by, by scholars. Um, I, I want to insist that someone like uh, Ilker Aytürk, for instance, who is a mm -hmm. great scholar in Ankara, has, has tried to compare the very political process of building up of the Turkish language 
as opposed to the Hebrew, to Hebrew. And he makes this argument that at least until the creation of the state of Israel, you know, Turkish was a creation, a, a top-down creation, whereas to some extent, uh, Hebrew was a bottom-up ah, uh, process. So he has this argument. And also, basically, Turkish uh, was built up against the backdrop of the writing tradition, the written tradition, whereas Hebrew was going back to the written tradition. Mm -hmm. It means that Hebrew was made up on going back to roots that were already there in the text mm -hmm. and that you could uh, re uh, revive. Mm -hmm. Whereas Turkish, you had to go to the countries, you had to go to, had to, to, lead, to lead huge campaigns, you mm -hmm. know, uh, neological campaigns uh, in the country and to mobilize, that's the word again of, of, of the Kemalists, right. to, to, to make a mobilization, to draft people in order to get the resources that were supposedly in the oral tradition and bring them on to Ankara, where they would be processed by the mm -hmm. linguist of the Tredil Kurumu and you know, made as a new language. So that's, that's the original part of it. It's that, you know, there is, there is a power that actually drafts all civil servants in the country or a lot of them and yeah. forces them to work with uh, right. this linguistic institution that at some point in the process seems to be superior to even, you know, ministries and to give orders to other ministries. So one of my study has been to show how uh, this association, namely a private association, which is very interesting, uh, was endowed with powers, with attributions that could allow it to tell other departments, other ministries what to do with the language. And so that's, that's a trans-governmental Trans-departmental yeah. mobilization. But in, in so far as they did uh, uh, try and involve uh, the people in the countryside and uh, their own vernaculars, I mean, uh, can we not uh, challenge the notion that it was purely a, a top-down notion? And I'm thinking here, for instance, of the work of uh, Hali Yilmaz, who has written a great book about becoming Turkish and how people, you know, would, through oral history, by the way, you know, how people, you know, um, received these, uh, not only the linguistic reforms, but all Kemalist reforms and how they processed themselves, those reforms. And all the scholars have been doing this job also, you know, of, of showing how, you know, bottom-up process, process, processes were involved in the very making of the language revolution. So there's truth to that. But it remains that first and for all, we must say that, you know, it was a top-down process that was imposed on the population through very coercive means. Let me give you one example that, that I found out uh, actually in the Washington archives, not in the, in, the, in, the, mm -hmm. in the Turkish archives. And that's interesting because it's in English, so that's, that, that's helpful. And it's interesting also because it's a, 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 a report written by the U.S. consul from Constantinople to mm -hmm. Washington. Constantinople being the word he uses, of course. So anyway, this is what he says. An amusing fact in connection with the alphabet reform relates to the taxicab service. On each taximeter, there is a small metal indicator which, when the cab is free, is turned upward and displays the word serbest, free. Few taxicab men had paid any attention to the effacing of the Arabic characters in which this word appeared. The municipality, therefore, provided some of its policemen with brushes and cans of red paint, and the evil was dealt with by the simple process of stopping offending taxicabs and painting out the Arabic characters. It reveals that you need to understand that the script reform is something like a filter through which you have everyone go if they want to go upscale in society. You have to remember that imtihan examinations were imposed to all civil servants during the fall and early winter of 1928, 
which means that you know it's 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 a kind of a purge if not a cultural purge it's a political purge even and and that's my point it's that that that's something that is very strong and that also that is something that also explains why at the historiographical level we have had so many difficulties to write the untold story of this narrative right because it's lingering precisely in the cracks between uh the official discourse and institutions and people associated with that and sort of you know this unknown territory that almost can't be documented very very easily exactly and that's that's interesting you know there is censorship that is basically since that goes back yep. to 1925 to the takriri sukun and mm-hmm. to, to the summer of 1925 but there is what i call meta censorship in the sense mm-hmm. that you have a, a script that is not that cannot be used anymore so if you are against the power against the kemalist government even though there is already political censorship, you will still have to use, you know, the the the, the, the script, the very script that uh-huh. has been produced by the government. So, and it's it is very much a, a script that is closely associated to the figure of Mustafa Kemal. Let me just give you one example. We we, we have been uh, um, uh, thinking of, of 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 resistance or bottom up, you know, negotiations. How these people, uh, how uh, society at large received the reform. There is the example of Rezanour, which is very interesting. Rezanour left the country, you know, uh, uh, in the late twenties because of the of the purges of the former Young Turks uh, apparatus, mm-hmm. and and he he went to Paris and then to Alexandria, uh, where he uh, issued for about eight years or maybe nine years, une revue de turcologie in French. French being still the language of, you know, of French cultural, of, of cultural supremacy. Yeah. Uh, even though English was taking over already. So uh, he issued this uh, revue de turcologie in French and in Turkish. At first, of course, he would never use the script used by the Kemalists, the Latin script. He was very much against that because he saw that, you know, Anatolia should remain Muslim. And he was very much close to this Muslim Turkish Anatolian identity. So he refused to use the, the Arabic script and, write again, and wrote against it in French or in Arabic script. After a while, even though, he had to comply by the new regulation issued by Ankara. So he went along and started to use the Latin script because otherwise mm-hmm. he could not be read anymore. Of course, he could be read by people who knew the script from before, but more and more people in Turkey, you know, were only able to read the Latin script. And the last resistance that he had against the Kemalist script was not exactly to write the, the, the words like the Kemalists would like. For instance, he would write Jevab instead of Jevep and, yeah. and, um, and use uh, uh, Ds instead of Ts. Why? Yeah. Because he would accuse the people from Selanik, you know, this Dunme, to have, you know, downgraded the Turkish language by putting all their, 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 P, their, their, their Ps and Ts instead of their Bs and Ds in the language. Yeah. They would use the dialect of Selanik and make it official rather than the good old Anatolian Turkish language. Yeah. This is really interesting, your comment on Rezanur. And my question would be about the re- reflection and reaction of the literary circles. So that's, that's a great question. As a part of a we could say democratic process, maybe it's too heavy a word for this period, but between 1926 and 1927, there was a campaign, in, especially in the, in the journal, uh, in the newspaper Aksham, where a variety of, uh, of, uh, of literati spoke out on the debate of the alphabet. Most of them, I think 17, contributed to the, to the, to the debate, and only three of them were advocating the change of script. Clearly, the majority of the literary circles we are against. Now it's again very difficult to answer your question. Why? There is a good example. There is an, an article that I like by Laurent Mignon, 
uh, a scholar in, in Oxford in, in Oxford University, and 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 he has uh, endeavored to to tell about how the literary circles try to 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 react, and he tries to show that there is an it's his words an untold story of the of the literary uh -huh. okay. of the script reform. The problem is that he can only make speculation, and he he actually admits that he says, okay, Peyami Safa. In the 1930s, he might have critical stances, especially regarding the, the Ganesh deal theory, see, the sign language theory. But that's 1939, and that's rather late. Uh, the Turk is dead by that time. So that's that, and that's not against the script. And you cannot find, I mean, I have not find, found uh, uh, arguments against the script reform during the 30s, 30s and 40s. The effectiveness of the reform is that it forces not only the citizens, but even the historians, to repeat the dominant narrative. And it's very hard to go against the backdrop of this narrative. Right. Some have tried and successfully done so. As I mentioned, Halil Maz, who has an oral history. Um, I myself tried to find some sources that show mm -hmm. how, you know, we have um, resisting elements of the former script in the new republic. Right. And then there is one last argument that is very often made that, you know, people still used. There's a huge continent of writings that is just invisible. And that is only visible through private archives, right. through ego documents, through uh, the fact that, for instance, uh, in the 50s, still in the 50s and the 60s, people would still use, you know, the, the, the Arabic script. And basically, you can make the argument that only can you see the visible and that the invisible is a huge continent that, that, that lives on and on with the end of a, of a, of a bio, bio, biologic, with the biological death of, of a generation. Yeah. Of, think about Aziz Nesin, for instance. Aziz Nesin. He was 13 years old only when he was, when the script reform was adopted, 1928, 13 years old. And, and he still have a lot of articles and books that are not published because it was in the Arabic script. And he was 13 years old. <laughs> so, I mean, there's maybe some, also some, some sure, yeah. will to keep up with the Arabic script to, to go to fight against the backdrop yeah. of the I mean, the I think reform. it's a good point. I mean, I think we've all come across these diaries, these, this correspondence and this writing in the private realm which is constantly in the Arabic script. And I like your metaphor of the iceberg, you know, on which the, basically the only stuff in the Latin script is what is publicly visible, mm -hmm. but there's a, a world of private, a private world that it remains within another scriptural form. And, and if I can uh, bounce up on this question, um, you know, this private world is actually public too, in the sense that the elite themselves, the Kemalist elite still in the in intimacy, they used the Arabic, the Arabic script. Not only the Democrats. We know that you know when the when the papers of the Democrats were seized by the power by the military mm -hmm. power in 1960s, a lot of them were in Arabic script. Mm -hmm. That's fine. But for instance, let me give you an example. You know, um, um, someone like uh, Mejdut Mansurolu, who was a Turkologist of the Turk Kurumu. I have found a letter in the in the private archives of Jean Denis, the French Turkologist Jean Denis, with the entête. Written in Arabic script. Mm -hmm. So it's not, there is no contradiction. Okay, it's the 50s. Other example, um, the, the Ministry of Education between 1938 and uh, uh, 1941 and 1946, let me help, me help me out here. The very famous Ministry of Education. Uh, yes, Hassan Ali Yujel. Hassan Ali Yujel writes to Jean Denis in 1950. Hassan Ali Yujel is head of Tchudil Kurumu when he's head of education by law. Because since 1936, by law, the head of the Ministry of Education is the head of the Chugdil Kurumu. Mm -hmm. This guy writes in 1950. He was the guy who, you know, who implemented uh, the Koyo Institutary, the in village institutes. And this guy writes in Arabic letter when he writes to Jean-Denis abroad because, you know, we know each other. We are Tukologists. We know that we know the, the higher, the, the noble script of the, uh, of the former uh, empire. I mean, I think this is a fascinating point because, you know, often we see uh, script reform tied to the introduction of the printing press, you know. But here, of course, uh, it's a... Con 
continuity of the manuscript tradition and the uh, manuscript as a realm of a certain type of uh, scripts and technology. I agree. And I think it's very important that to think also of the reform, you know, to, to take your argument back the other way, I think still that, you know, the street reform is very much to, has everything to do with mechanization of the language. Right. I had great difficulties to find, for instance, the very mention of the existence of a typescript using the Ottoman script. You know, um, I found one after a while, my friend Gunesh Shuxel, that I think you interviewed as well, um, found, found, uh, you know, found for me a, a commercial, an ad, mentioning the existence of Zafer Emili uh, 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 typescript in 1925. So there existed something like that. But it must have been so hard to, to use. Right. And, then, and then, you know, basically the continent, the last continent we're talking about was a written continent, was a manuscript continent. But what is, you know, what, 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 uh, what comes to your eyes, what pops up to your eyes when you go to the archives is that before 1928, everything is in Arabic script. And after 1928, everything is in Latin script. Simply because the Latin script enables the use of, 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 uh, of, of mechanics. Yeah. And, and, and there's a great importation of, of these mechanics uh, in, the, in the country. And if I can make w one argument, think of, think of it as a long process that has been thought of and wanted as such by the Kemalis himself and much earlier by a lot of people. Open up the book of 1819 of Volney, uh, who is basically advocating the imposition of the Latin, of the, as he called it, the European script, to the language of Asia. And he already says, you know, at some point, the mechanization of language will impose those Asian backward people to use the Latin script for mechanical reasons, not even for ideological reasons, for mechanical reasons. And many scholars such as uh, Bilal Chimshir or, uh, or Roderick uh, Davison have made this argument that the telegraph made a very important role mm -hmm. in the very process of acculturation of the Ottoman elite to the use of the Latin script. Because even though you can use a local indigenous Ottoman script, in the country, you still have to use the Latin script as early as you have going to, right. to, to, to have a correspondence with someone who is abroad. I can just, I'll just give you a little story. I mean, so in my, in one of my previous researches, I've translated, for instance, the work of Avraham Galante, who was uh, a major opponent of language reform. And he wrote this, uh, this set of works called the uh, Arab letters are not an impediment to our progress. And he was always interested in this question of uh, mechanization and whether or not it's actually an impediment, you know, whether or not the Ottoman Arabic script is actually an impediment to mechanization. And so one of the things he would do is he, he ran off to the Japanese embassy in Istanbul and he was, and he said, you know, show me your typewriter, show me your typewriter. And he wanted to see whether or not, uh, you know, how is it that, for instance, in the older form of uh, Japanese script, they could have, you know, thousands of characters and still use a typewriter. And the basic point is that the Japanese are modern, they're industrialized, they're mechanized, but they're still capable of having of not, not having to use a Latin script. Yes, yeah, interesting. And the Japanese example is, is a current example of the of, of the of the against uh, of the camp of the camp of the counts. For Namu Kemal already, Namu Kemal in the 1870s uses the, the Japanese argument as as you know a good example of a civilized country that is still using a very complicated, complex uh, script.
Okay, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. We're here today with Dr. Emmanuel Shurek talking about the politics of Turkish language reform. Uh, for a complete bibliography associated with today's podcast, visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. So the song we just heard uh, was a, a relatively martial tune, but in fact, uh, that tune we just heard is uh, the uh, modern Turkish alphabet song. Uh, Emmanuel, tell us about that clip. Exactly. So uh, it's uh, it's the Hafler March. It's in the March of the Alphabet, which was issued uh, uh, in in 1928 in order to celebrate and propagate and inculcate uh, amidst the population the new script. And um, so what was done here is that uh, there is this um, documentary, uh, or should I say, uh, experimental movie maker uh, Eric Bulot, who is French, uh, who made this great movie uh, La Révolution de l'Alphabet, the, the Revolution of the Alphabet, um, which consisted uh, in going to Ankara and asking uh, uh, students. He went to these to this, uh, to these students and asked them to sing again this this song and, and play the, the the partition, and that's what he received. So he revived, literally speaking, the the Hafler Marche uh, eighty years or so uh, after. So uh, <laughs> it's 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 a nice uh, it's a nice piece, and it also shows. Um, I would say that there's a part of um, enthusiasm in this reform, and it's very hard to talk about enthusiasm yeah. because enthusiasm is by excellence, uh, you know, an, a category of, of, of the Kamalist propaganda. But there is some kind of, you know, enjoyment in there. And, and also uh, in my work, I've tried to show that it's not only all about disciplinarization, for sure it is, mm -hmm. and coercion. Uh, coercion. It's also about, it's also about uh, having fun, playing games with yeah. names, to take the words of uh, Sheriff Mardin. Uh, you know, playing games with names, with letters. Uh, let me give you one example. Uh, you have you have, a, you have a National Geographic who uh, devoted a, 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 a reportage to this uh, reform in uh, early in 1929. And the guy goes into the city and takes pictures. And you have this shop where they sell, you know, uh, Chorap or Gumlek or, or Juzdan. And and they use the letters in order to, to to make commercials. So 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 you have you know this uh, uh, intertwining and meshment of local interest or people who make money out of selling the new uh, abecedaire. How do you say abecedaire? You know these uh, handbooks for learning the new alphabet. Yeah. And they you have a lot of people who make money with it because there is an economy that goes along with it. So. Even though people, a lot of people lose their job or are, are put in bad position, I'm thinking especially in the Armenians who are, who are you know, the traditional uh, uh, dire, uh, press print workers yeah. of Istanbul, they are, they are in a bad position. And you can think of the script reform of a nationalization process, mm -hmm. but they have a lot of people who enjoy the, the reform and who, who take advantage of it. Right. This participatory aspect is very uh, important for understanding the dialectical uh, process that give shape to the modern Turkish language because, okay, we talked about, you know, sort of, uh, that, that, that gray space where people are still using, uh, the Ottoman script, but there's also this reality that the final form of the Turkish language, um, is not necessarily the initial one prescribed, um, by the, uh, by the, um, uh, language reform, uh, councils. Uh, and so, um, you know, to look at sort of the, the slippages, well, let's let's uh, we'll have Sechel read a um, a poem that was composed as an example of someone playing with these neologisms, these new words that are they're trying to introduce in the language. So we'll read this uh, poem, which appeared in an, in a, a newspaper in the city of Adana uh, in 1935 um, by a, an author, Seyfedin Galip Arkan. Um, and uh, for our for the listeners who understand Turkish and know Turkish, they're going to hear a lot of words that they don't know. And in fact, the 
poem actually, which is available on our website. Uh, it included a small glossary to explain all of the neologisms or even perhaps completely imaginary words that were introduced. So Secha, why don't you go ahead with the uh, poem Talvasa? I'll read it. And if I cannot read it well, we're going to do it again later. Okay. Because okay? <laughs> this is difficult. <laughs> How the words are. By the way, the fact that it's difficult illustrates the whole process. It's, it's just Absolutely. not normal. It's not natural to you. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about Let's it. Let's give it a shot. Yes. Çavaş şimdi güneyden doğarken ipkin ipkin, starasız gönlüme dökülüyor talvasa. Oğaler ışık saçıyor tinime bitin bitin, içime sağınç veren dağlar bürünmüş yasa. Sevillerimin tinimde bir düğüm oldu kaldı, yağ dellere gömüldüm, kun almadım sevgiden. Um, what is this word? That says umunç. Umunçlarım yer ise gönlüm sağlığıma daldı, kosan içine attı beni, tonzal kör evren. Sevgi boru bir kıpma olsun esrik etmedi. Ben gülmedim sevgiye. Gönüller çığan olsun. Macitler ses veriyor. Daha günün yetmedi. Yazulku sevgilime bunlar armağan olsun. Yeah, so I mean there's you did a great job with that such I think we we should all applaud you. <laughs> Thank you. Because If you're looking at the text on our website, not only are there tons of words that probably nobody knows today and maybe never were in use, but there's also a number of spelling inconsistencies and typos between the glossary at the bottom of the poem uh, in terms of, again, the D's and P's uh, and the actual text. And there's issues with the type, like the N's are upside down and stuff. So it's a very <laughs> strange realm. Right, it's like they didn't know really, they couldn't figure out how to replace Ayn and Gain, I think. Yes, of That's course, like yeah. the biggest problem. Like when we think about like just getting into the universe of these people sitting around the table thinking how to really like engineering the entire alphabet, like replacing what with what and how to like reinvent things. It's really difficult at the same time. Like it's um But then you see people just do what sounds right to them. Anyway, exactly. even though there is a rule that's in place. Yes, so, so you're absolutely right. There's a lot of uh, creativity in there. And or not. Or not, or not. <laughs> because there is constraints and creativity. Yeah. And there are, you know, there's, there are margins in the both sense of the word. Margins on the paper, on the page, on the paper, and margins uh, in the metaphorical sense. Um, a good example, a good place to see this language in the making, you know, rather than this dumb language. Because, by the way, the problem of historiography is that it always takes the reform as implemented, as a resultative, in right. a resultative perspective. But studying language in the making, the very process of making the language with different actors from the top and from bottom is very interesting. And what you can do is go to Ankara, to the archives, to the prime minister, or more precisely to, to, the, to the single party archives, where you have a very interesting font uh, that I, that I uh, study with other scholars in Paris. Uh, it's called the Tilbayramlare. The language right. festivals. This mm -hmm. is very interesting. Why? Because it's a, a, an institution that was built up by the Tudil Kurumu and the power and the, and the party in 1934, um, actually 32, but it started in 1934 in order to celebrate the new, the new language among the population. And what is interesting is that it's, it's nationwide. So from Adana to uh, Tekirda to Mush to Trabzon to even Hakkari, you can find um, uh, uh, people who endeavor to write pieces, poetry, Uh, mm -hmm. discourses, speeches in Östürkçe. 
and who send it to Ankara as a proof of uh, uh, compliance. And uh, what is interesting there is that you have a lot of those, you know, um, failures or what we hold to be failures, but are, but they are not, you know, the conventions are not there yet. Right. You have to think that the first Imlaki Lavuzu uh, was published in 1928 and it was very, you know, it was, it was, as they would say themselves, published Agilene in a hurry. They just changed the script and then realized that a lot of problems are going to come up with it. So should we uh, put a majuscule? Should, should we majusculate the name of monsters? Or the French do, so let's, let's do it. Um, the name of languages, let's not do it. Otherwise, but it's interesting because today we, we, do, we do majusculate in Turkish the name of the language, like in English, which probably is a consequence of the Englishization of the language. Mm. But, you know, there's a lot of questions that are raised when you change the script. And that 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 you can see the consequences of in the paper, in the published papers, in the manuscript, all over. Now, uh, if I can go back to, you, to, to, your, to your question related to this piece that you just uh, uh, read, and it's very interesting, is that, so it's Adana, and it's, it's, it's full of words that we don't know of today, and it illustrates something that also Geoffrey Lewis very well showed, which is that at some point, I think it's, he called it the chaotic turn, or the chaos you know, mm-hmm. of, the, of the linguistic reform. So that's, that's something that is, to me, almost an icon of the narrative, of the, of the official narrative, not really yeah. something that happened. But let me explain what he says. He says that in October 1934, Atatürk gave a speech in front of the hair of the crown of Sweden, and then again um, uh, 15 days later on the 1st November 1934, in front of the, for the opening of the new mm-hmm. uh, year of the Turkey Buk Milat Medjlisi. And then he's supposed to have spoken in a language that was un- incomprehensible for anyone who would not know perfectly, you know, the new proper Turkish Ostrichi. I mean, to be sure, when you look at this paper, at this official speeches, just like the one you read, you will find very uh, exotic, uh, in a very exotic country. But um, what is interesting is that uh, you know, the process of purification went on after that. Uh pocket dictionaries were issued in 1935 and there is a, a, a very slow process of stabilization and conventionalization of the language that happens throughout these years and that slowly but surely you know uh, helps taking off all these little discrepancies or contradictions mm-hmm. or hesitations oscillations that you find in the script of the of the early 30s um, and one last example I would like to give it, in order to illustrate what you said about these words that did not succeed, it, it's actually to, uh, interesting to look at what uh, someone like Jean Denis, the French turkologist I mentioned earlier, wrote in the uh, uh, in a book that is very important for turkology, actually, but quite forgotten. The first uh, edition of the Fundamenta Turkologica, you know, uh, this book that was uh, issued in 1959, that is a sum of all the knowledge of turkology at the time. And he publishes about the evolution, the re- about the language reform, basically. And mm-hmm. in, this bo- in this article, which dates to 1959, he writes that there are plenty of words that were invented in the 1930s that have entirely disappeared and that are just, you know, uh, fantasies. And what are the words he uses? He wears the word Eretmen, Erenji, Önem, Ülkü. And he says this word will never come up. I know, you know it's, it's not. Uh, it, 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 it will be muallim, talebe, ehemiet, emefkure forever. So sorry, just for our listeners that don't know Turkish, why don't you translate those words? So the words are öğretmen, which means teacher, öğrenci, which means t- uh, student, önem, which means importance, and ülkü, which means ideal. The, the point is that he makes the argument that such words are not going to succeed, which of course they did. And all of them are in use today. Some of the first words you you learn when you're learning Turkish now. Exactly. And it's also very interesting to look at the historiography itself as, you know, a testimony of the process. Open a book, 
of the 1950s, he would tell you, you know, basically this is what John Smith says in the 1950s. This is so interesting. He says, look, the language reform did not happen. Simply, it, you know, the, there is a famous book in French, La Guerre de Trois n'a pas eu lieu. So the, the language revolution did not happen in, in the 1950s. He says, basically, the people I know, but that's interesting, the people he knows, which are Frat que Prudu, and other, you know, former Ottoman Ill illiterate, mm -hmm. use the same language as they would in the 20s. They change the script? Okay, they change the script. The language is the same. That's what Jean-Denis says. But obviously, this is very sociologically situated, first. And second, when you look at what his successor, at the head of the French uh, uh, Inalco, says, um, 20 years later, he says and says, look, I came to Turkey, and the linguistic revolution is an absolute success. <laughs> There's no doubt that, that what has been en uh, uh, endeavored in the in the 30s is a success. So the very you know it's not it's not what happened in the 30s that has changed. It's the look at what happened in the 30s that has changed. You don't look at the 30s the same way in the 50s and in the 70s and today. Mm. And 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 I think that obviously I mean what made the linguistic revolution effective is the growing up of new generations, the scholarizations, the mass scholarization, television, the radio, the radio, but even television. Yeah played a major role, just like in Italy, you know, in Italy, it was only in the 70s that you have the building up of one federal, if I can say so, language. So that's a long-term process. And that is one of the difficulties when you study this subject, is that you have to take into consideration not only different scales, national, local, transnational, but also different times, timings. Mm -hmm. The very, you know, uh, vivid and, and, and sequenced timing of the hard politics, but also the long durée of processes that are very much enrooted in, you know, uh, technicalities. Mm -hmm. And when I say technicalities, I think down to the 1970s, 80s even, school, books, printing, television, but also upwards, thinking of, you know, when the first Ottomans started to write and publish grammars, handbooks, grammars, that we, that we made available for, for, for pupils, mm -hmm. for Ottomans, Turkish-speaking pupils. The Ottoman uh, literacy played a major role in the building up of the Kemalist linguistic revolution. There is even what I call a metalinguistic Ottoman revolution that basically started, you know, uh, different people have uh, envisaged this question, but in the 1850s when uh, Ahmed Cevdet and Fuat, by then Effendi, not Pashas, yeah. wrote the first grammar of the Turkish language. Let me explain exactly what this means, because it's very important. So you have these two guys who are uh, very fond of questions of education, high-rank yeah. civil servants, who meet in, in, uh, in Bursa, in the buses, for uh, obviously uh, medical reasons. They meet there, and they uh, write down the first grammar, Kavaidi Osmanie, the first grammar of the Ottoman language. This glossonym, Ottoman language, rather than Turkish, is extremely important. Why is that so? Because in each chapter, they will... Uh, use different sections for Turkish, Arabic, and Farsi. Therefore, by writing the history, the, the, the grammar of Ottoman, they make, you know, thinkable the very category of Turkish as something that is entirely devoid of any non-Turkish elements because those elements are yeah. in the other categories, Arabic and Farsi. Okay, I think I understand what you're saying, but let's just say it again, just to be uh, clear. So they have, they're writing this grammar and they've separated Ottoman into three components, Turkish, Arabic, and Persian. That's that correct. Okay. That's correct. They do that. And by doing that, you know, before, before them, people would use the word Turkey, you know, to, to, mm. to point out to their own language. But these, they had a conception of the language that was way more hybrid, mm -hmm. 
than what we hold to be Turkish today. So there is a kind of natural, if you want to think of in terms of Foucauldian terms, there is a naturalistic turn in the way these Ottomans think of their own language. That is a mixture of different languages. But by using the category of mixture, they understand that there are different anasir, different elements. Mm-hmm. So a language that is made up of different languages. But if this language is made up of different languages, then there is, in terms of ideality, right. such a thing as Turkish that is actually pure. Yeah, right. And this has everything to do with the hair given by Turkology. Yeah. If you if you want to think of of Turkish of the Turkish language reform, you have to think of the major role played by Turkology, which understood Turkishness as something mm-hmm. pure, something yeah. sui generis, you know, of, of one of a kind that is devoid of any Arabic, that is pre-Islamic, that is pre-Persian. So there is this heavy repository that is brought into the Ottoman thinking of the language. Yeah. That is the metalinguistic revolution I'm talking about, mm-hmm. and this is why. Ten years later, people start to speak about the simplification of Turkish as something different than Ottoman. And this is something that will be said again by Shemseddin mm-hmm. Sabi in the 1880s. And lastly, this is why, for instance, um, Ibrahim Shinasi is the first guy who used the notion of pure Turkish. He says, uh, he doesn't say Öztürkçe, uh, he says Safi Turkçe. But he used this category. And he will not practice it at all. But the point is that the understanding of Turkish as something different in terms of, nat- yeah. of naturalism from a naturalist perspective is essential. Yeah. And to, to tie back in your larger point about the how this is actually a political um, process that's unfolding over generations. I mean, when you mentioned, Jeb, that he's not just somebody involved in education and language uh, reform, but he's actually the person who presides over the codification of Sharia law and the Majelle. So all the different reforms of the state and the state taking control of realms that were maybe outside of the state or parallel to the state during this time. Can I just add yeah. something to this? I think it's very interesting. So there is this ambition of universal codification, yeah. universal regulation, nizam nameification of the world, if yeah. you may uh, allow that. And and actually, I think it's very interesting, and 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 this is something that I don't think people have com- have noticed, that they make, the very moment they build up this new grammar of the language, they also write a grammar of capitalism, of the first stock option uh, firm that is settled in Istanbul, the Shirketi uh, Hariye. Hmm. So, you know, if you want to think of in terms of, of, of uh, what is going on there at the large picture, there is a process of regulation, of transformation of the world that has everything to do with the globalization of, of, the, of the Ottoman Empire. Welcome back again to Ottoman History Podcast, Chris Grayton and Orly Perrier with Sacha Yilmaz and Nir Shafir speaking to Dr. Emmanuel Shurek about his research on the politics of Turkish language reform. We've mentioned a lot of uh, the dynamics about this top-down process and how it was sort of sometimes challenged or appropriated uh, uh, by the by the masses. Um, uh, but I want to talk a little bit about uh, more specifically what that may- meant in terms of people uh, people surnames. Um, so how did this uh, language reform uh, overhaul uh, how people thought about their their identity and also perhaps. Uh, talk about uh, what that meant in terms of Muslims and also non-Muslims, because I know uh, there were uh, different rules. Okay, so that's that's a big question. Um, 
First, I have to say that I don't know how they thought of themselves, you know, of, the, of their identity. That's the one thing I cannot tell about. <laughs> Actually, I mean, I, I don't even, I'm not even sure that people who do oral history can answer that question today. But that's another, that's a methodological question. But to go back to the uh, surname reform. So 1934, uh, after two years of purification of the language, the government decides that, uh, you know, I mean, this was a process that's absolutely parallel, by the way. It was started already in 1932. The government decides that, you know, the, the reform should be uh, applied to uh, proper names and only to common names. So uh, people were forced by law to take a name. Uh, that this was a, a law uh, voted in June uh, 1934. They were forced to take a name that was etymologically pure which means they have to bear a name that is taken from the lexicon produced by the Tredil Kurumu. And it has to be pure Turkish. You cannot have a name that is coming from another language, from a foreign language. So you can, it cannot be a, a Kurdish name. It cannot be an Arabic name. It cannot be a Bosnak name. And it, supposedly, it cannot be an Armenian, a Greek or Jewish, that is Spanish name. Do we have a sense of how many people had to change their name uh, to, to conform well, to those regulations? That, that depends on how the state considers who has to change their name. Because precisely at this, at this point, there is 16 million people in Turkey. And, and out of which, I don't know, like uh, maybe two persons or less, one person are non-Muslims. Among these non-Muslims, you have a lot of people who are considered by the state to already have a last name. Uh, these are the people who were, uh, you know, Christian, Rum, uh, Jews, Armenians, and because of uh, religious reasons, because of the registers that were written down by the churches or by the synagogues, uh, because of their contacts with the West or because they were coming from the West, they had what the, what the Turkish state considered to be uh, surnames. And by surname, you mean a, a patronym, right? The last, the, the last name of the father, because people have different types of names, like maybe a communal, a tribal name or something, these types of things, but these don't fall in the genre of Exactly, that, that, that's perfect. That's what I wanted to say is that, but, so you have in this case, patronymic traditions, indeed, uh, names given from father to son. In the case of Muslims, it's way more complicated. And this is, by the way, something that has been well studied by Olivier Bouquet, uh, Les Noblesse du Nom, he's a fr book in French, unfortunately, I hope it will be translated, where he uh, clearly explicits uh, what are the different categories of names available in the Ottoman, let's say, Turkish-speaking world. So you have you have you know you have the Gebek Ade, which is the name that you're given when you're when you're a baby, uh, or Asl Ade, same name. And then you have the uh, uh, Mahlas, which you are received. You know Mustafa is a Gebek Ade uh, Kemal. I'm sorry to go back to Mustafa Kemal again. It's my, you know my my own methodological Kemalism that <laughs> that works me hard. Uh, but so Mustafa is the Gebek Ade Kemal is the, the Mahlas. And then you know at some point uh, either during your life or after your life you get a, 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 what do you call what is called a lakab. Well you know people had names. The Turkish state could have considered that, you know, those lakabs or those mahlas could be used as surnames. He did not. He decided that they did not have last names and that they had to choose a new one and that they had to choose a new one in the, in the, in the, in the stock, in the, in, the, in the marketplace that was produced by the state for the common names. So you have a, prolog a prolongement, a prolongement of, the Turkish, of, the, of the linguistic reform into the proper names, into the names of people. And that is uh, very interesting because, you know, a lot of people were called Turk. Öztürk, pure Turkish, and they call themselves, or Aratürk, pure Turk. Uh, and a good example is um, uh, Safet, Safet, who was a minister of, of culture, culture meaning education in the 30s, and he, he calls himself uh, uh, Safet Arukana. So his, Safet means purity, so he's purity of pure blood. And this imaginary of purity is everywhere in this reform. Uh, 
And you have this idea that everyone has to have a pure Turkish name, and even if the name can evoke semantically and not only etymologically the idea of purity, it's perfect. It's even better. So you have people who are called Turkish or or who have names coming from the nature, nothing that comes from the from the religion. Although you have some people who play with game, who once again play games with names. You know, you, you all know the game of uh, know the names of, of uh, Abdullah Tarverdi. You know, and Abdullah meaning Tarverdi, the gift of the of, of God. So Tarverdi basically is is just a translation of his uh, Quranic first name into a, a new last name. Or Tarankulu, you have a lot of Tarankulu Abdullah in that case. So going back to your question again, um, you you mentioned the case of the Muslims and the non-Muslims. So we have. Basically, what is considered and produced by the state as two different populations. One population that is considered to have last names and the other who is not considered. The first one is non-Muslim, the second one is Muslim. Wherever they come from doesn't matter. So the point is that the reform, after many oscillations, this is a very complex phenomenon and process. Right. This has had as a consequence that people who were Muslims were all forced to take a Turkish name, a pure Turkish name, as produced by the Tudil Kurumu. And it was the same actors who produced lists of words, of new words, and lists of new names. It was the Tudil Kurumu in the both cases, and especially Besim Atalay. So these Muslims are, uh, you know, assimilated into one linguistic community, one language-speaking onomastic community, whereas the non-Muslims are left with their former names. Individually, they will be able to change their names. So that's why you have a lot of Jews who have taken, you know, names Turkish. But in my opinion, this had some important consequences that, of course, I cannot measure uh, with regard to how people see each other. If you are going to call yourself Georgos Papadopoulos, it's not the same that if you're going to call yourself Georgos Osturk. You can still be Georgos and legible as such, as, you know, Georgos or Isaac and not, and not Mehmet. But you are Osturk. If you are Papadopoulos, then you are from a different world. And I don't say that Georgos cannot be called Osturk. It did happen. Or it, some, some, some were already called Osturk, or not Osturk, but had, you know, Kabakche, because they were a room from, the, from Anatolia. But the point is that this reform had consequences on the very relation between Muslims and non-Muslims in Turkey. And you can think of this reform also in different perspectives, in terms of gender, for instance. Who has a right to choose the name? The father. And, and so this, it's putting the name and the, the authority of the male into the process of name choosing who how i mean how, how are you going to call yourself you call yourself erdogan which means born soldier natural born soldier right erdogan how many names in turkey bear this heavy virility nationalistic chauvinistic patriotic um you know virility that is imposed through the name at all be a man you know sibel erdogan i'm sorry sibel so that's that's what i'm what, what i'm meaning right now and 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 one last point you can think of so also of uh, of uh, you know uh, gender race also class you know Who chooses names? If you are a poor peasant, you may choose your name. And then there's a list, the, the, as, you, as you mentioned, there's a civil service uh, servant who comes and, and, you know, and, and, and checks with you if this name has been taken or not. If you are higher up in the hierarchy, then you might have the opportunity to choose your own name. And if you are one of those Karaos Manolu, you can even pick your old, you know, Mahlas. Uh, And make it and make it uh, so yeah do so, like so there the are rules. Are Sorry, the Kupraludes are they exactly. So there, there's there's a, a whole a whole um, you know fantasy about the Kupraludes. Again, the, the work of uh, Olivier Bouquet must be mentioned here. So anyway, you have a lot of people who who receive their name directly from uh, Mustafa Kemal. You know, um, I know of a guy. 
I know of a guy who, who, whose name is Ashexel. Um, uh, I will not tell who he is, who uh, was the, the great uh, uh, son of uh, Jemal Ashexel, a great uh, uh, muhabir, a journalist from the Milliet, I believe. And, and, and this guy was named Ashexel because of the flash. So the flash of the photograph, you know, uh, uh, incited Mustafa Kemal to name his uh, private photograph after his ability to uh, shed light. So um, that's what I mean. You have a lot of games, hierarchies, strategies, and and creativity also in this reform. Right, absolutely. And but there's also this. Maybe we can talk about the memory, like how a particular memory of a local population is also kind of like erased. Maybe like I'll give my own example. We are known, our family within the village or among the relatives is known as Imikid, but my surname is not Imik because the great-grandfather went to the registrar's office and chose the surname Yilmaz, where like three million people has at, at the moment, into maybe more. But when, when, we are, when I'm like basically meeting our acquaintances from the village, they actually don't know me by my surname. I, they cannot understand who I am, or they cannot understand who are my parents or grandparents. They only know me by being imikil. So in local memory... There are, there are clashes. Um, we all have, as, as Aurelie put it, like an, an identity making, and it's a very big project. And its impact is maybe less debatable at the moment vis-a-vis uh, -vis the language revolution, right? Um, because it's language is something is alive and li living, but we've left behind the whole surname revolution a little. But actually, within like these small circles, family circles, village circles, relative circles, Those memories are somewhat alive, and what um, near um, reflected into like this private, the private realm, right? There is this underlining uh, layer uh, of uh, common knowledge. It's still alive and resist in a way resisting to, to 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 this more or less top-down interventions, as you put it in your writings. I think it's very interesting what you said. It. I entirely agree. Um, it raises anthropological questions at the end, anthropology of the name, but anthropological questions, um, which is that, uh, uh, by the way, I want to mention the work of uh, 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 Meltem Turkus here. You know, she has a great PhD about the fantasy of names and memories of names. So it's, 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 it's her work that we, we're turning around right now. And, 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 and again, what you said, you know, about this, in fact, it seems like a jewel society that also equals the metaphor of the iceberg, is that indeed you have a, a state society, society of the state, and then something else, something, you know, in the words of the 1930s, uh, you would say, uh, le pays légal et le pays réel, the opposition between two worlds. And, and, and to a great extent, you know, why I'm talking about anthropology here is because basically it seems that, yes, the Soyada works at some extent, but there is all the categories of names. It's not just names themselves, it's categories of names and manipulations of names that are not the same, that are not the same hierarchy as in the West. The Westerners, I mean, the Westernizers of, the Kemalist Westernizers hoped that the Soyado would take the place of other names and it would be as important as it is in the West. You know, it's very important in the West, but but that's not the case. And as you very well mentioned, you know, first names are extremely important. And, and not only is that, but last names are not so important. You can change, it, change them easily. The regulation for changing names in Turkey is rather simple compared to what it is in, Tur in France. So I agree with you. I think, I think uh, you cannot work on, on, on names only. I mean, if you're going to work on the 30s, it's going to be hard to do something else and, and then, then working on papers, on paper work. But if you're going to work on the 20s, on the late 20th century, like Melton Turcos Turku did, then you have to go to, to ask the people and, and ask them how they semanticize how they identify what language 
what narrative they produce about their own names, which does not necessarily mean that it is a meaning that was put in at the very beginning, but it doesn't really matter. It's, it's very similar to the process that took place in colonial Algeria in the 19th century, uh, when there was also this process of the state uh, imposing names to get away from the patronymic uh, tradition. And so uh, a lot of the times, though, um, people did not have a choice in the names that were imposed, and they were given sometimes ridiculous names. Um, but these these memories of of these of these names uh, survived obviously in the private realm uh, and in the sub semi public realm uh, as well. That is very interesting, and, and you know it's interesting because uh, if you look at the Dabut Dabut Jaridesi of the so the, the, the the minutes of the parliament of the parliament uh, in 1934 when the law was adopted, so in the few days before 16, 17, 18 June of 1934, the comparison is actually made between uh, what is going to happen in Turkey and how the French managed to impose. Uh, the the system of a patronymic system to to the to their colonized Algerians wow. and to the Jews in Germany, so you have you have examples here of <laughs> attempts of assimilation, and this also this also brings the question of you know of of the construction of the Turkish Turkish state as a colonial entity or not a colonial entity. This brings a lot of questions. Yeah, and like sort of to conclude and on the subject of this political project, like the enabling people to change their names and sort of delete their past for better or for worse within the early Republican period sort of has all these functions. But, you know, as you said, there's this idea maybe that things will become hardened after that, but actually erasing the names and, and all of that accelerates the process and allows people to play with the names even more and more. It's sort of, uh, it shows how, uh, the, the language reform or in this case, the surname reform, kind of takes on a life of its own and has an afterlife much longer than what uh, the people envisioned. Right. I mean, I think we can point to numerous examples in Turkey in which toponyms, uh, patronyms, all sorts of things are constantly changing, that this politics of language is still evolving and still under contention today. Uh, I mean, I think many of us who study Ottoman history may have learned, for instance, Ottoman language uh, from one of the many free courses uh, in Istanbul and other cities that try to teach you the Ottoman script again. And there you get to see kind of, again, this kind of enthusiasm for script, for language that you mentioned in the 1930s, except, you know, today in 21st century Turkish. So you see housewives, bankers, students, everyone just interested in kind of getting a grasp uh, on this alphabet, you know, whether they're religious or not, or for a variety of reasons, kind of interested in this national uh, project or you know personal project of reclaiming or uh, reclaiming the language, becoming involved in it, uh, and always choosing different words for different uh, purposes in political context. Yeah, and again, we would see this as maybe a backlash against all of these reforms and and Kemalism, whether learning Ottoman or adopting like Arabic and Persian names for the children. But on the other hand, we can see it through the lens that you've presented today, which is this continued process of uh, playing with the language and. Uh, changing it for various right. purposes. Yes, I agree. I think we should have in mind that there is a, so this creativity, this enthusiasm, and there is also a lot of violence in there. And it's, it's, it's not contradictory at all. But the state violence is huge, the symbolic violence. Sure. And it's also, I mean, when I say symbolic, I think of practical symbolic violence because it's actually mm -hmm. enacted by every day. Um, so I agree with that, that there is, there is a long, enduring you know, process of, of playing games with names. And at the same time, there is a very heavy assignment. You know, think of a Turk as someone who, was, who, who might call himself a Turk. 
Turk. Right. Actually, he could be called Turk. He speaks a language that is called Turkish. He lives in a country that is uh, Turkey, and he sees the word Turk everywhere. I mean, I'm, I'm talking sure. about the four letters, T-U-R-K. The name of the banks are Turks. Every, everything is Turk. So you also have a process of naturalization of the identity that's extremely sure. heavy here. And, and, and I think that, uh, that, uh, that is... That is in between, you know, he he play one may play games with names and also be uh, you know submitted to these processes. And uh, one last thing about you know this backlash in favor of Ottoman today. When you look at the campaign led by, for instance, by Erdogan starting in December two thousand fourteen, it was exactly the reverse. It was counter Kemalism, so it was Kemalism. The right. way he managed, you know, to to bring back the Ottoman resembles so much the way and the very narrative and the very propaganda discourse that was uh, put on the marketplace in the, in the 20s. So it looks like the, the, the repository is not only uh, on, on, the, on the sur le fond, c'est-à-dire uh, um, sur la forme, it's also formal. The, the Kemalist repository is also formal. The way you manage politics, the way you manage language, or the way you, you claim to manage la language at the government level right. is still very much and profoundly Uh, you know, determined and structured, structurally determined by how Kemalism shaped the relation to politics in Turkey. And this works also in terms of prophylaxy, social prophylaxy. And, and you know, and, and we go back to the medicalization of the viruses that we have to get rid and so on and so forth. Right. So some of the symbols and ideology change, but the technologies of, of rule and power. Uh, and tropes. Interesting. Well, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about uh, on this subject and maybe we'll have a side conversation after the recording, but I think we're going to have to end it here for the interview. Uh, Emmanuel, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and sharing uh, this research, obviously a topic of immense interest for our audience. Oh, it was a great pleasure. Turkey and abroad. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, and thanks to all you guys, Nir, Orly, and Sechio for joining in the conversation. I also want to thank all our listeners for tuning in, staying to the end of this extended interview with Dr. Emmanuel Shurek. Um, I want to invite you to check out our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, for a bibliography and links to some other episodes. Uh, we're going to leave you, actually, on this episode with a little bonus uh, uh, conversation uh, between Orly Perrier and Emmanuel Shurek uh, in French as part of our new uh, recording operations in Paris. So for those who are uh, able to follow along in French... Um, we're going to give you a short clip here of a little discussion uh, of the history of uh, French Turkology, which has come up a number of times in our conversation today and is uh, no doubt of great re relevance. So stay tuned. <laughs> Bienvenue à nouveau sur le Ottoman History Podcast. Je suis Aurélie Perrier et je suis avec Emmanuel Churek, qui est maître de conférence à l'EHESS et qui est affilié avec le CETOBAC, qui est le Centre d'études turques et ottomanes, balkaniques et d'Asie centrale. Bienvenue Emmanuel. Merci beaucoup. 
Alors, on va faire euh, une petite session euh, en français euh, pour, euh, pour changer, mais on espère en avoir plus à l'avenir. Euh, donc, euh, étant spécialiste de la turcologie euh, française, euh, j'aurais aimé savoir, euh, en fait, euh, comment s'organisent les études turques en France. Donc, euh, vous êtes affilié avec le, le CETOBAC, il y a aussi euh, l'INALCO, euh, il y a aussi le département d'études turques de Strasbourg, qui est, qui est très réputé. Donc, pourquoi il y a ces, ces différents euh, départ, départements et centres euh, et, et quelle est leur, leur relation ou leur, leur spécialité alors en fait, euh, cette organisation effectivement euh, nationale, euh, elle s'explique assez bien historiquement. Euh, disons que l'institution mère, c'est quand même euh, la vieille institution orientaliste, euh, l'école des langues orientales, qui a été créée en 1795, et où d'emblée, il euh, y a eu un enseignement du turc, euh, euh, donc euh, dès 1796, et la rentrée, euh, je crois bien qu'il y avait un enseignement de turc. Euh, et, euh, et en fait, euh, c'est au sein de cette institution que s'est développée la turcologie parisienne au départ, et donc française. Euh, alors on peut dire qu'en gros euh, elle, a été, elle a détenu le monopole des études turques avec le Collège de France euh, jusqu'au début du XXe siècle et, euh, et, et pour être précis euh, quand je parle du, du Collège de France c'est euh, l'élection de, de Pavet de Courteil euh, dans les années euh, euh, 1860, 64 si je ne me trompe pas jusqu'en 89, hein, il meurt en 89 qui marque l'entrée de la turcologie euh, au Collège de France, donc c'est vraiment l'inalco l'école des langues orientales qui est devenue Inalco en, en 1971 qui constitue le, le lieu d'origine de, de, des études turques en France et c'est là d'ailleurs qu'a enseigné euh, pendant près de 50 ans euh, celui qu'on peut considérer euh, alors c'est tout de suite un, un narratif euh, euh, avec des pères fondateurs mais celui qui a joué un rôle important dans l'institutionnalisation de la turcologie française à savoir Jean-Denis euh, Jean-Denis c'était un professeur de, donc de turc euh, qui était un ancien droguement comme beaucoup d'anciens professeurs euh, des langues qui étaient passés par, euh, par le drogmana par le ministère d'affaires étrangères avant de devenir euh, eux-mêmes euh, enseignants de langue orientale mais qui s'était formé à la linguistique au début du XXe siècle et qui a euh, littéralement euh, formé euh, tous les gens qui sont euh, les gens qui ont formé euh, euh, les gens qui sont en poste aujourd'hui. Et est-ce que le fait que euh, Jean-Denis et puis euh, beaucoup d'autres euh, personnes comme lui euh, étaient diplomates et soient passés par le drogmana, est-ce que ça avait un, un impact sur euh, le regard qu'ils pouvaient porter euh, sur les, les études turques Oui, oui, absolument. Euh, c'est important parce que c'était des gens qui... Alors ça, ça nous fait entrer dans la problématique de l'orientalisme, au sens saïdien du terme. En fait, euh, bon, euh, il ne s'agit pas de refaire ici le débat sur euh, Saïd, mais simplement de dire que euh, la manière dont beaucoup de ces gens ont perçu et interprété la Turquie en France, euh, complètement à l'encontre de ce que raconte euh, Saïd sur les liens entre l'orientalisme euh, et colonisation, dans le cas de la Turquie, en particulier la Turquie nationaliste, ce sont des gens qui ont au contraire embrassé la cause du nationalisme turc, du kémalisme, et qui ont défendu bec et ongle, mmh. y compris jusqu'à déformer ce qu'ils voyaient, donc c'est une autre forme de déformation, ouais. à déformer de manière positive ce qu'ils voyaient en Turquie pour se faire les porte-parole, les héros du kémalisme en France. Euh, et euh, leur intérêt personnel était bien compris là-dedans ils étaient eux-mêmes des, des intermédiaires des, des, des ambassadeurs culturels ou des, des hommes doubles comme dirait Christophe Charles qui allaient et venaient entre, entre Istanbul, Paris, Ankara et qui se faisaient en fait des, des sortes de gatekeepers de ce qui devait se dire euh, et bien se dire sur la Turquie en France ce qui explique en partie pourquoi il y a une espèce de co-construction du nationalisme turc et de la turcologie française la version kémaliste du nationalisme turc qui était perçue et produite en France par les orientalistes français comme étant très très laïque, très sécularistes, ce qu'elle n'était pas forcément. La Turquie était moins laïque qu'on le dit et qu'on continue à le dire encore aujourd'hui. Et donc on a une espèce de co-construction où on a vendu en France l'image d'une Turquie laïque, très proche de la France, ce qu'elle n'était pas forcément, 
pour mieux euh, se faire valoir comme étant important sur la scène académique française et éventuellement euh, auprès des Turcs, puisqu'on on leur apportait à eux euh, des bienfaits, euh, des profits symboliques venant de France. Donc c'est ça qui fait la caractéristique en fait, de cette euh, tradition française de, de turcologie, si on compare à, à d'autres... Euh, euh, la, la façon dont c'était étudié dans d'autres pays... Euh, oui, absolument. Euh, c'est vraiment... Si, si, vrai que les études turques en France ont été marquées par ce sécularisme méthodologique, si j'ose dire, donc qui, qui est même en amont de la production des objets. Hein, c'est vraiment la manière dont on approche. Et on a longtemps étudié la Turquie d'un point de vue kémaliste, avec des objets kémalistes, ou en soutenant en tout cas le kémalisme, avec une vision très moderniste, très progressiste, qui de toute façon est la doxa... Euh, qui était partagé de manière beaucoup plus large que dans le monde de la turcologie et même ailleurs qu'en France. Mais c'est vrai que ça a beaucoup impacté la façon dont l'écriture de la Turquie a été, dont l'histoire de la Turquie a été écrite en France. Et je pense que ça explique aussi certaines complicités, disons, avec, avec les, les ornières du nationalisme turc, avec les, les points d'ombre, les zones d'ombre du, du nationalisme turc, avec une certaine difficulté pendant longtemps à endosser la critique. Euh, du kémalisme, du génocide des Arméniens, voire à nier, ou en tout cas à pas facilement reconnaître le génocide des Arméniens, à être assez, assez timide dans ce domaine-là. Et donc, il y a une co-construction très claire dans ce domaine-là. Et qu'est-ce qui fait que ça a changé, que finalement, une, une critique plus, plus honnête du nationalisme turc a pu émerger Est-ce que c'est lié, justement, à l'émergence d'autres structures institutionnelles ou d'enseignement Ouais, je pense. Euh, en fait, il y a ça. Il euh, y a aussi un phénomène général qui est que, disons, de toute façon, à partir des années 80-90 surtout, euh, les études turques ont été traversées par euh, des, des, des courants beaucoup plus critiques. Euh, je ne parlais pas d'honnêteté parce que ce n'était pas tant qu'ils sont honnêtés, c'était des gens qui étaient très intègres et qui en plus mmh. se vivaient comme intègres et, et étaient sincères dans leur démarche. Mais c'est simplement qu'il y a effectivement des considérations, des, des prises en compte. Il y a le rôle d'une historiographie critique. Je pense qu'en France, Étienne Copeau a été très important pour, pour, pour dégager un espace critique euh, sur la Turquie. Des gens comme Elise Massicard également euh, ont ouvert un, un discours alternatif, se sont intéressés à d'autres objets. Euh, Benoît Flich, euh, Nathalie Kleyer, enfin il y a, y, a, y, a, y a plein de choses qui ont été bouleversées dans les études turques. D'un point de vue euh, plus sociologique, on pourrait dire que c'est aussi lié à l'arrivée de nouvelles générations, c'est l'arrivée de, euh, de nouveaux cadres de financement de la recherche. L'ANR par exemple, les ANR c'est des, des systèmes de financement de la recherche où on donne beaucoup d'argent à une équipe qui s'est autoconstituée, donc qui ne dépend pas des hiérarchies traditionnelles et qui va faire ce qu'elle veut. Donc, elle n'est pas dépendante de sa propre mmh. hiérarchie traditionnelle, routinière, bureaucratique. Elle invente sa propre hiérarchie, si j'ose dire. Mais du coup, elle peut aussi inventer ses propres règles de fonctionnement et ses règles d'investigation. Ça, par exemple, très concrètement, à mon avis, ça a joué dans une espèce d'ouverture euh, de la turcologie française. Quand je dis turcologie, c'est une formule tout à fait archaïque. Et ces gens-là ne s'appellent pas du tout turcologues. Et, et, et enfin, euh, c'est évidemment des gens qui parlent beaucoup plus l'anglais. Et ça a joué aussi. C'est des gens qui ont, qui ont subi, si je veux dire, le retour de la French Theory par le, par le biais, ah oui. euh, par le truchement des études turques qui est venu dans les années 90 et surtout 2000 et qui du coup sont beaucoup plus en contact aussi avec des, avec des renouvellements qui se font de l'autre côté de l'Atlantique. D'accord. Alors vous nous avez parlé un peu de, de la genèse de la turcologie en France avec la création de, de l'INALCO. Euh, alors est-ce que vous pouvez maintenant nous parler un peu du, du CETOBAC Oui. En fait, le CETOBAC, euh, qui a été renommé en 2010, si je ne m'abuse, parce qu'avant il s'appelait le Centre d'études turques, euh, donc le passage de Centre d'études turques à Centre d'études turques ottomanes, balkaniques et centres asiatiques illustre bien euh, une espèce de déprise par rapport à, à, à la, au nationalisme qui, qui, qui contaminait les études turques euh, pendant longtemps. Euh, mais euh, ce Centre d'études turques, en fait, il avait été lui-même une création euh, très ancienne, 
on peut considérer que la première institution véritablement turcologique, c'est-à-dire centrée sur le monde turc, elle remonte à 1935. C'est Jean-Denis, justement, qui l'a créé à la Sorbonne en 1935. Ça s'appelait le Centre d'études turques de la Sorbonne, avec le recteur Charletti et, et notamment Albert Gabriel, qui était le, le directeur d'Institut français d'études anatoliennes à Istanbul. Et ensemble, ils ont créé cette vitrine de la turcologie, qui était aussi une vitrine, comme on l'aura bien compris, du kémalisme à Paris, avec les mêmes acteurs qui étaient liés aux deux institutions, ou aux trois institutions, si on compte l'IFEA. Et, euh, et euh, en fait, ça, c'était une première étape. Ensuite, euh, 25 ans plus tard, Louis Bazin, crée, euh, donc, qui est directeur d'études à l'école pratique des hautes études depuis 1950, crée euh, un institut d'études turques, euh, toujours à la Sorbonne, euh, qui, lui, va être moins diplomatique, moins diplomatico-scientifique et plus scientifique. Et c'est là que vont être formés beaucoup de, de nos maîtres. Euh, l'Institut d'études turques qui se trouvait rue du Four et, euh, et qui va être actif en fait jusqu'à la fin des années 60 après il va être beaucoup moins actif euh, dans les années 70 euh, et en fait il va passer euh, le fond notamment de la bibliothèque va passer à la Bulac euh, par, en fait ça dépendait de la Sorbonne quand il y a eu la scission de la Sorbonne à la fin des années 60 après mai 68 et la création de Paris 3 la Sorbonne nouvelle l'Institut d'études turques est passé à Paris 3 euh, là, il a dormi pendant quelques années euh, et il est en train d'être revivifié euh, par les gens de la Bulac qui ont récupéré les fonds et qui le rendent à nouveau disponible. Donc, vous avez une tradition qui passe par là et vous avez aussi euh, un centre euh, d'études turc qui a, été, euh, qui a été créé en fait euh, euh, à, euh, à l'EHESS. Euh, donc, c'est le fameux centre d'histoire du domaine turc euh, qui date de 1990 et qui était lui-même le produit d'une réunion de différentes équipes au sein de l'EHESS. Donc voilà, c'est un peu euh, méandriforme, si j'ose dire, c'est un peu anastomosé, c'est plein d'institutions et de traditions qui se sont réunies et qui ont fini par faire sens au sein de plusieurs institutions parisiennes, le HESS, euh, l'INALCO, euh, et puis comme vous l'avez dit, donc, euh, le département d'études turques de Strasbourg, qui sont les principales euh, institutions où on fait du turc et des études turques aujourd'hui en France, avec un petit peu aussi à Aix-en-Provence comme Merci beaucoup Emmanuel Churek d'avoir été avec nous pour ce bref épisode du Ottoman History Podcast. Merci à notre auditoire aussi. Merci à vous.